Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. I'm Adam Huss coming to you from Los Angeles, California. Thanks so much for listening. The sponsor for this episode is Centralis Wine. Centralis is an ecological winery that I started to protect or benefit the environment and my community with every business and winemaking decision. I envision a wine world in which humans are the students and servants of the non-human world, regenerating and protecting the vitality of ecosystems and promoting the diversity of life through wines that uniquely and deliciously reflect local abundance. Centralis wines feature foraged prickly pears, urban perennial polyculture wine garden produced grapes and other fruit, gleanings from urban fruit trees, dry farmed century old vines, and organic and biodynamic viticulture. If this sounds interesting to you, join our email list or wine club at centraliswine.com. That's C E N T R A L A S wine.com. My guest for this episode is Diana Snowden Sace. Diana studied viticulture and enology at UC Davis and went on to work in both California and French cellars with Robert Mondavi Winery, Mum Napa and the Rajo Estate, Chateau Le Fleur de Bouillard, Domaine Le Fleve, Remy Wine Cellars, and also for the last 20 years, Diana has been an enologist and part of the family at Domaine du Jacques in Burgundy and consultant at Domaine de Trienne in Provence, and she's also winemaker at Snowden Vineyards in Napa. In addition to this enviable resume of incredible winemaking experience, Diana is one of the leading experts on carbon capture and reuse in the wine industry, and strategies for reducing the massive carbon impact of glass wine bottles in the wine industry. So, while I would have loved to have spent this hour asking her about making wine in Burgundy, those questions took a backseat to discussing the urgent story that she discovered there, because it was Diana's experience of working with the natural world in the vineyard and tracking data in Burgundy that led her to the inescapable reality of the urgency and severity of climate change and altered the direction of what she's doing with wine. It should come across rather quickly that Diana is a brilliant mind and bright spirit, so it makes the things that she says about the reality we're facing all the more forceful and, frankly, sobering. We talk very openly about the challenges of maintaining mental health and keeping courage in the face of what we know. When I started this podcast, I said I wanted it to bring hope. In a very real way, this interview with Diana is about moving beyond hope that things will get better. And yet, finding the strength to continue to do the work that our planet needs us to do anyway. I personally find the inspiration for this strength in the natural world itself, in everyone I get to interview for this podcast, and in every one of you who listens. I'm extremely grateful for you, and please don't underestimate the influence you can have on each other's lives and spirits. I recently came across this quote by Howard Zinn. The future is an infinite succession of presence, and to live now as we think human beings should live, in defiance of all that is bad around us, is itself a marvelous victory. I hope you find Diana's defiance as inspiring as I did. Enjoy. Diana, thank you so much for doing this. Welcome. Oh, thank you, Adam. Thank you for having me. This is a real pleasure. And as I said, there's so many topics that I would love to talk to you about. Um, let me just start by asking you about winemaking. What what does the word winemaker mean to you? And 
Oh, wow. Okay. That's, yeah, that's a loaded. What does that job mean to you? (laughs) Um, Or how do you see that? Yeah. uh, Yeah. I think I should back up just a little and say that, you know, I'm a Napa native where that has a certain meaning. And I moved to Burgundy 20 years ago and have been living in France and making wine in France where the word winemaker is pretty uh, frowned upon. And so I have this, you know, dual perspective on winemaking itself and on the term winemaker. And I have absolutely become a Burgundian in that sense where I find that the term winemaker is really hurtful because it takes a village, you know, it takes, it takes a whole body of people. And so, yeah, I, I kind of, you know, I accept that the term is necessary because we can't, you know, it's shorthand for something. And, and, um, and so, yes, I am a winemaker, but I try not to say I'm the winemaker because, um, because I have teams in Napa, I have teams in Burgundy, and I wouldn't be able to do everything I do without that whole, that whole village. How do you see your job? Like, what is the essence of your job as a winemaker or, you know? Um, so, so yeah, I, um, am part of the production team at Domaine du Jacques in Burgundy and I serve an enology role, uh, at Domaine du Jacques and I have taken everything that I feel is good and right from Burgundy and imported it to my family's (laughs) property in Napa where, where I am doing the, taking the creative decisions, which I don't do at Domaine Dujac. I'm a supporting role at Dujac and I'm a sponge sucking up (laughs) as much as I can from, from the beautiful tradition of making vin de terroir. And I apply that to my family's property in St. Helena, or I'm speaking to you from St. Helena, but the vineyard itself is above Rutherford. And I also have a consulting client um, called Ashes and Diamonds uh, in in Napa, where I'm making the creative decisions as well. So, and then and then finally, there's there's um, uh, Domaine de Trienne in southern southern France, where I'm part of the team. Again, I'm not I'm not the single decision maker, but I'm very proud to be part of the the creative winemaking team there. So for me, you know, the term winemaker and my job shifts a bit. Um, I think, you know, uh, when you're talking about terroir and you're talking about wines that are an expression of terroir, uh, terroir is three components. It's the site and it's the, the weather in a given vintage and it's people. And uh, frequently when winemakers speak about uh, making vin de terroir, they say, oh, I do nothing. I just let the site speak. And I think that's just so disingenuous because the human element is the most important part of making a vin de terroir. You know, we now know because of epigenetics that our farm making choices actually impact the DNA of the vines itself. But we now know also from climate change that our human activities are impacting impacting the weather in a given vintage, also impacting the genetics of, of the of the uh, vine. And so it's, you know, it's a dynamic whole and people are part of it. You know, terroir is ecosystem. And I would argue that it's not just farming. It's also, you know, the security that is uh, felt in a region, in, in a community, in a, in a job. And I, so I think part of my job is to create that security, that feeling of joy when you come to work, that is part of my job. And, Part of terroir is passing on the baton from one generation to the next. And I feel that's really where I am in my life is 
um, making sure that there is uh, a next generation in wine in the face of climate change. So that has become part of my job as well. <laughs> I have decided. Yeah. So I, you know, the winemaking part is my lifeline. And these <laughs> days, a lot of my free time is, uh, is spent understanding climate change and how our industry can be powerful uh, to decelerate it. Yeah, that's really well said in so many points. I, it's funny, I, the most recent uh, episode that I released of this podcast was with a, a, a vineyard manager in Oregon named Drew Herman, who basically broke down you know, quorum sensing and signaling and epigenetics and how the soil microbiology impacts all of that um, and you know how our farming impacts that soil microbiology. And so it's really interesting to hear you say that in terms of how terroir is a part of, you know, how that is an important terroir and how the human element is part of that, which I always think, you know, the culture and your, your perspective of being part of two cultures, two, you know, very globally important wine cultures must really impact that perspective on, on these things, how, how the human element is and cult, the, the cultural traditions, especially, you know, coming from Burgundy is such a big part of the wine that actually gets produced from those regions. Um, I, there's so many things I'd love to get into with that. And I want to come back to that. But just off, off the, on the general scope, are there ways that you can talk about, well, I'll, I'll just jump into something that an idea that I've been thinking about, which is this idea of varietal labeling versus location labeling, which yeah. is, you know, obviously a, a huge obvious difference between these two cultures napa and and burgundy or france in general um the old world versus the new world in general do you for me i'm looking at varieties as varietal labeling as this thing that's kind of holding back the new world wine industry because now we're tied to something that doesn't allow for flexibility like we've now branded varieties as opposed to a culture or a region that can incorporate new things and adapt and change and it, it's almost like this difference between seeing wine as a process versus you know searching for the holy grail um can you has this have these kind of ideas come, come about and yeah. you know, how do you think about that for sure i completely agree um i think you know it's really jarring to come out of your bubble uh where you are you know handcrafting uh, these wines with heart and soul, and then you go into the harsh reality of selling them and marketing them, and trying to convey what you do succinctly to to a community that just you know understandably has busy lives and just doesn't have time to uh, to understand the nuances of all of the choices you're making. And so yeah. I think you know we grasp at you know these really easy concepts, and um, and it's just it's just part of part of uh, the deal. There's just no, no easy solution there. So yes, um, I've certainly variety is a very limited perspective on how to understand wine. And, you know, so many of these things are just starting points. I, I have been frustrated recently because I started a small label in 2021 uh, with the intention of earmarking it for bottle reuse um, because, and I'm sure we'll get into that later, but you know, bottles yeah. are the biggest chunk of your carbon emissions. And so I have been, you know, 
attacking climate change from a lot of different angles over the past couple of years and decided to go for, for the big, the big game in terms of, um, in terms of carbon emissions and try bottle reuse. And I wanted to go and get, you know, get some fruit that was also, um, coherent in terms of sustainability. So I found some own rooted biodynamically farmed, um, Merlot from the Santa Cruz mountains. And, um, and yeah, the only thing that everyone is focusing on is the fact that it's Merlot. And it's just so frustrating because yeah, I, I not only, uh. not only is own rooted really changed the expression of any variety, but on top of that, you know, I've native yeast fermented it. I have put all of, you know, it's, it's so much more than just Merlot, but you know, my, my, now it's kind of coming time to start releasing and selling it. And everyone's just focused on the variety and just saying, can you do the same thing, but not Merlot? <laughs> no, I can't. <laughs> Thank you. Sideways. Yeah, we can. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's uh, yeah. Yeah. That's a perfect example. Um, yeah. And then of yeah. course with, you know, with Burgundy, you never call it Pinot Noir. You never call it Chardonnay. You call it, oops, excuse me. You, you call it uh, red Burgundy. You call it white Burgundy and the variety is, is secondary. Yeah. Well, I know that you are becoming somewhat of an expert in climate change as relates to carbon and carbon capture and reuse. Could we just start down that path? And, and could you give us a, an overview of where, where your studies have led you and what you've learned and how that's guiding what you're doing? Yeah, sure. <clears throat> um, so I guess I started uh, obsessively studying climate change after the 2017 Napa vintage, and but I've always had an eye on it. I you know I went to UC Davis, and I will forever remember in Roger Bolton's class raising my hand and asking about the carbon dioxide that comes off of a tank, and his answer at the time was, "Well, the amount of carbon dioxide coming off the tank." is uh, equal to and less than actually what is reabsorbed by the vineyards um, later, you know, the next season or the previous season. So it's net neutral. And, and now, of course, um, uh, he has been a great resource and support to me when I uh, started down the path of capturing carbon dioxide on the top of tanks. Um, so, so essentially, fast forward to 2017, um, we had, you know, that was the vintage that will be remembered by the fires. But before the fires, we had this heat wave over Labor Day weekend, where the temperatures in the vineyards reached, you know, in Fahrenheit, 120 degrees, 42 Celsius. And I grew up in the Napa Valley, and we never, ever saw temperatures like that. And, you know, it was hot when it broke 100. And all of a sudden, just reality hit me like a ton of bricks, our beautiful tradition of winemaking is absolutely going to be threatened by climate change. And I just decided that I, you know, no question in winemaking is as important as that one. You know, part of my job as, as a winemaker and, and enologist is to, to conduct studies every year. And uh, my father-in-law has always been big on trials. And I just decided, you know, that time it makes no sense to, to do a side-by-side -side comparison of whole cluster fermentations versus distem fermentations. Those questions are, you know, a speck of sand compared to the question of climate change. So I, I, yeah. <clears throat> I eliminated all of the trials that we were studying and working working on, and I focused myself 100% to climate change as it relates to winemaking. So it was a big learning curve, and you know, I started small, just understanding what the heck is you know greenhouse gas phenomenon. What does that mean, and what is 
what are the terms of the Paris Agreement and what is the carbon cycle and how does that work? So a lot of a lot of research and and a lot of of um, highs in terms of seeing uh, these these potentials for for you know embedded in the natural process of winemaking for carbon sinks and then. And then a lot of demoralizing realizations of, uh, of how dire the situation is and how difficult it is to implement these changes in a world that is just not designed to go carbon neutral. Um, so that, that's, you know, that's, that's the, the short story. Um, and, you know, I can talk a bit about the specific points where we can actually put away carbon, and that is, you know, that is exciting. Um, so yes, carbon dioxide capture, I think, is absolutely going to be the future. How long it'll take us to get there uh, is yet to be seen, and will depend upon whether or not there is a carbon tax. But you know, we have mm. right now in the atmosphere 420 parts per million carbon dioxide, which is uh, which is, you know, the driver of climate change, and um, and we're going to start seeing news, and we already have about direct air capture, where you have these huge buildings that suck air, peel off the CO two at four hundred twenty parts per million, and and then make it pure, and either convert it into another carbon based product or put it underground for storage, and that is absolutely going to be necessary to slow down um, this warming effect. Well, at the top of our tanks during uh, fermentation, we have 999 parts per million carbon dioxide in one place at one time, and we blow it out the windows. So that is a missed opportunity. And um, and there are a lot of options, but still the dust has not sell- settled on the, those technologies. But there absolutely will be a day when we are required to capture that CO2 because it's right there, you know, just waiting for us to grab it. So that's one, you know, exciting thing for the future, one exciting opportunity for winemaking and and alcoholic fermentations is to be part of the solution. How would, uh, several questions. Um, (laughs) How would a, a smaller production facility, like a micro winery or, you know, just a boutique winery, be able to incorporate some of that capture in the winery? Is that something they shouldn't be focusing on right now? Um, yeah, so I would direct you to a Porto Protocol website where I have done workshops on carbon capture. And there's a lot um, of information that is available for free. It is a you know a huge topic and a complicated and technical topic. So it'll be difficult yeah. for us to cover. But I, very quickly, yes, a small... So if you... Um, are looking for a low infrastructure um, carbon dioxide, you know, recycling. A lot of people for, for, for generations have been taking the CO2 from their first ferments and then ushering it into another tank, uh, eliminating the need for dry ice, diminishing the need for sulfur dioxide. And that is, you know, easy. You just, you just have to have a closed tank with a pipe that you can access in the top and then, um, Carbon dioxide is a heavy gas, and it will flow from one tank to the next. You can fill up your next tank with carbon dioxide. So that's a small, you know, it's a small economy in CO two emissions. Another thing right. you could do here: we are in California. Depending on you know scale, but you could meter it into a greenhouse, <laughs> and um, and you will see accelerated growth in that greenhouse. 
And so mm-hmm. that is something you'll have to crunch the numbers on. You don't want to put too much because then we're talking about, you know, we're talking about acidifying the air and having too much carbonic acid. But still, if you, you know, if, if the proportions are right, that's a possibility. Another, I saw another installation where you can similarly bubble it into tanks that have algae, and then that algae can be used in different ways, fertilizer later. So that 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 is also available on Porto Protocol. Um, so those are some small idea ideas for low budget, low infrastructure. There have been another interesting application, which is definitely not low budget, but I'm excited about. Um, in the Czech Republic, the university there, which the name I'm forgetting right now, is capturing CO2, compressing it, not cleaning it, because remember I said it was 999 parts per million CO2. Well, the rest of it is fruity esters, which you know we've all smelled yeah. off of off of our ferments. They're capturing yes. all of that, compressing it, and using uh, it to um, to carbonate water. So I think that's <laughs> super cool. Yeah, because you know, when we buy carbonated water, that CO2 comes from fossil fuels. And uh, I practice biodynamics in, in Burgundy, and we talk about the memory of water, you know, this kind of esoteric um, space where, where you know, uh, biodynamic farmers have proven that the recipient holding the water imparts a signature on it. And you will see these trials of sprouts that have been grown with water that was held in a gold recipient versus a copper recipient versus a glass versus a plastic, you know, and then prove that there's difference in terms of growth. Anyway, this me- this concept of memory yeah. of water. Well, I take that, you know, my biodynamic brain and think about the memory of carbon dioxide coming from fossil fuels. And I think gross, you know? <laughs> so I love this application where you're taking carbon dioxide from the fermentation and using it to carbonate beverages and cat and they have a kind of fruity ester taste and i just i i love that compared to (laughs) you know your your lemon scented (laughs) or whatever water that's been trekked from god knows where oh i love the idea of like a a wine ferment flavored sparkling water sounds incredible yeah Um, yeah those are actually really great practical and easily i mean you need a tube and like some you know something to seal your 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 tea bin with you know some plastic and a rubber band basically yeah um, so i think i think carbonating water you'd need to get some pressure going but yes I, no I, i'm yeah. thinking of some of the, yeah. the, the previous right everything yeah. yeah completely completely do without any infrastructure just redirect that that's fantastic mm-hmm. you you mentioned that we're already at 420 parts per million i i, I saw something uh, where essentially grapevines and a lot of plants evolved at like 240 parts per million carbon in the atmosphere. When was the last time like our world saw 420 parts per million? Uh, it was 3 million years ago. And yeah, no. And at that time, at that time, you know, Burgundy was a tropical lagoon and that's why we have the limestone deposits that we have. And on the South pole, uh, there were alligators and, and trees and, um, and yeah. And when you compare, it's truly frightening, you know, that, that in terms of physics, our, our planet is hurtling back towards that equilibrium. And, um, and it's been going slowly the last 30 years because, because the emissions weren't as high and because um, the ocean was absorbing some of the CO2 and the, and the glaciers were providing a temperature buffer. But as the glaciers melt and the, sea, and the ocean becomes saturated, uh, the climate changes are going to go faster. And, um, 
and and that's what we're really um, the reality of the next ten years is that we're reaching you know the Paris Agreements, uh, uh, no no return point, and um, and so, I'm afraid we're going to blast past it. Yeah, and the acceleration becomes exponential at that point where yeah. it's already exponential. We just kind of yeah yeah skyrocketing yeah. No, and that's where well, we get to really demoralizing places in our hearts. Well, and that that was my next question. Let's talk about mental health and <laughs> you know, your mental health and my <laughs> mental health and and knowing the things that we know and the more that we study the and the more that you know, we see uh, that we're living in a world where the will to make these changes isn't there it isn't there in the at the at the level at the at the you know, governmental level where those changes really need to be made. Yeah. Um, yeah. How, you know, you know, I've heard you t- talk about really frankly saying that like, you know, there were times where you're thinking like the best thing you could do for the planet was slit your wrists <laughs> um, <laughs> in terms of reducing your carbon yeah. footprint. Yeah. Um, and I, I know, you know, that's both funny and serious and, and also probably things that a lot of people will think about. Like, I mean, there is a lot of, uh, despair I think mm-hmm. about it I mean in myself in my own heart for sure mm-hmm. and um you're you've been through this cycle and you're you're living with this so how how is this sitting with you and how are you dealing with that yeah no it's been uh, a roller coaster and and yeah that what you shared absolutely was uh one part of the <laughs> of the path to where I am right now and you know um I definitely don't want to be you know, flippant about that I think once you really digest the reality of where we are, and if you can take a little step back and not get you know, lost in the in tsunami of emotion, you have choices. You know, either you decide, right, carpe diem, we're, we're, we're screwed. <laughs> Let's go down and pillage the cellar or whatever carpe diem means for you. Um, or you decide, you know, this, this ship is going down, but what can I do that I can live with every day that I do look in the mirror because I'm not going to slip my wrists. That is not, you know, I'm not that devoted to reducing my emissions. I still, still have a divine purpose. And, um, and so then I have decided that, you know, I am going to, I am going to do everything I can. This is, this is a lost cause, but um, when I say this is a lost cause, I really think that fine wine is, you know, we're in the middle of the sixth biggest uh, extinction and fine wine is on the endangered species list. You know, when you scroll, when I scroll through my social media uh, feed and I see that polar bear emaciated and awkwardly balancing on a tiny little chunk of ice, I see fine wine. You know, we are kind of shoulder to shoulder with polar bears. And yeah. I just, I have made my peace uh, recently with the very real possibility that um, I, that some fine wine is not going to be saved. But we are fighting for <laughs> various shades of bad for, for the rest of humanity. And, um, and we really can have an impact in terms of 
sustaining humanity uh, past this next 300 years, because that's the problem is we are all on different timelines. Generational generation, human generations are short compared to the timeline of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and the way that the plant natu- the planet naturally reabsorbs it. So we are fairly cemented into a warming cycle for our generation, the next generation, and the generation after that. However, what we do today can, uh, can turn the ship around on a 300-year um, cycle. So that's what I'm fighting for. And if, if, if we can possibly save wine, then great. And I'm fighting for that too. But I have had to accept that we probably won't be able to save fine wine. Yeah, you said, and, and I mean, just looking at this, honestly, uh, I think is really important. You, you know, you just said before we started recording that hope can be, uh, ah. how did you say that? <laughs> yeah, no, I said, I said, I can't remember exactly how I said it. But I said, you know, it's really, it's really important to be honest and with yourself and, and yeah, hope, I think, I hope I hope is a different shade of denial. Yeah. I have reached the point where I no longer, I no longer have hope. I, I am going to stare this, this um, reality in the face and keep fighting, knowing that it's really unlikely that, uh, that I am going to save fine wine um, but, and that I'll never have a satisfying answer either. It's absolutely certain that within our lifetime and the lifetime of our children, it's just going to get worse. Uh, we're not going to see a return to cooler temperatures for a hundred years, 200 years at this stage. And, and right. how long it takes depends on what we do today. And, and so, yes, I have let go of hope and I have, I think you have to go through the darkest parts in order to be effective in really tackling this problem. Do you, well, uh, before I jump into that, um, I, we released a wine this year with my winery called, um, well, it's made with prickly pears and it's mm. really telling that story because we're, I'm making wine in Southern California where, you know, if, if anywhere is going, the water is going to be cut off to vineyards, it's here yeah. um, and soon. Yeah. And, and so I'm just trying to highlight a, a fruit that doesn't need irrigation. That's, indigenous and that you can make wine from you know um, oh, i love it and i and and i say all that because what i titled it what i called this wine the name i gave this wine was if you're falling and it's from this idea i, I love this quote if you're falling dive mm-hmm. um, this idea that you know making the best out of uh a bad situation you know if you're on a sinking ship you know play with the band as it goes down kind of thing and yeah, you, exactly. you, know, you have you can yeah. you can still be your best self even when you're plummeting yeah. to your destruction so to speak yeah um yeah and I, i'm just wondering you know also in relation to that like you know you're talking about the extinction of fine wine to what extent do you think we we need to redefine what fine wine is, or just redefine what wine is, so that we can incorporate um, and and value some things that are mm-hmm. going to do better in the future? Or and how important is that? Yeah, no, I think I think you're absolutely right. We're going to have to let go of a lot of the things that we traditionally consider quali- quality uh, wines, and and um, and it, that's already happening. Also, you know, in terms of um, accessibility, Burgundy, you know, California Cabernet, they're expensive. There aren't that many. If those are the things that I make. There, there isn't that much of it. And it's becoming, you know, less and less uh, relevant. And, and that's okay. Um, and I think, yes, I think you're right. I think we can take 
bits of tradition. We can take the best parts and weave them into tomorrow's reality and, and come out with um, something that is, you know, that is, you know, in the picture of terroir, that it is, that is representative of the era of that moment is that it's inevitable, whether we want it or, or not. And so, yes, I am a bit of a dinosaur <laughs> as we established before starting this. I'm not a millennial, I was born in 78. And I, you know, I was lucky enough to know the classics and I have now had to, you know, make my peace and mourn the passing of that era. And um, only once I can do that, can I embrace what is coming. And I think that, yes, there is plenty of, of um, it won't be the, the previous generation's definition of fine wine, but there is a future for a new version um, of, of, of wine. And certainly I think, um, you know, it, it, ha- it is such, for me, wine is, uh, it is the metaphor of civilization. It's the meeting of, of people and nature. And at that, you know, at that intersection is, you know, when you find the most exciting moments of transcendence, you know, it's, it's a moment where you are listening to an echo of nature's heartbeat and it is connecting you to people, both those who are sharing a glass and those who helped, helped make the, the wine that you're enjoying. And it really is, it is one of the things that is uplifting and helps me fight for what I love. And as you say, dive into the abyss. You know, it helps me. It gives me courage. Yeah, no, I, I love that idea of where, how you just ended that. I mean, I often, when I get into these despair states, I really have to check myself and make sure that the decisions I'm making are, and I, and I, I guess this is my question to you, do you think about this idea of being motivated from love versus fear? Oh yeah. No, no, no. Um, I'm over fear. We're headed into something horrible. I mean, whether you fear it, where you, whether you hope it, you know, fear and hope they're two sides of the same coin. Um, it's coming. (laughs) It's going to be horrible. Uh, it's going to be even worse for our children and, um, you might as well just, you know, get ready. (laughs) Whatever that means, you know, in your heart, in your home, um, in our industry. And that, that's what I'm working on you know, it, all of those things. So, but, you know, capturing, creating tanks to capture rain, adding solar panels, adding insulation, um, not gaslighting my children, not gaslighting anyone around me. In fact, I'm the bummer that you had to sit down next to at the table while I'm going to, where I'm going to um, drop some, some truth bombs on your head. And, um, and I just consider all of that, you know, preparing for, for what's coming. Have you had many conversations with people who like either are unconvinced of your perspective or, or act, you know, flat out deny it? And, and how, how do you navigate those conversations or what, you know, what kind of facts do you bring to bear for those kind of people to, well, I to think, wrestle with? Yeah. I think that um, for, for me and for everyone, my testimony, the most, you know, the most compelling testimony can come from my lived experience. So, um, you know, I, I started when I started, you know, realizing myself what was happening, it was based on temperatures and how I was observing my vineyards reacting. I went through, um, my father-in-law kept really careful notes of all of his vintages. So he, you know, going back to 1969, I took out all of his notebooks and I plotted harvest dates and I plotted sugars and I plotted TAs and I plotted pH and 
then came up with these undeniable lines, <laughs> you know, just that, was, you know, that was a part of my early studies, just staring me in the face and my blood ran cold. You know, the, the harvest has moved from October to now we're harvesting in August. And at the same time, we used to shaptalize. I know Jacques would, you know, pick at 10 potential alcohol. And now we're getting in August, 14 degrees uh, potential alcohol. That's a huge shift in 30 years. And, you, you know, you just can't ignore it. And so, yeah, I share my lived experience as someone who is working with natural world to people who don't have that perspective because they live in a city and they're somewhat buffered from from those ob- observations. Yeah, and you, I'm, I'm guessing you're seeing this on two continents as well. Yeah, for sure. No, and, um, you know, in California, you know, it's a little different in California. In California, I feel like sh- for sure our harvest dates have moved forward, but the biggest um, change has been water availability and that yeah. and, and coupled with the fires. You know, we're close to, uh, my, I'm sorry, my email keeps beeping in and I don't know how to disable it. Um, so in California, we're, we're a little bit, impacted differently because we're so close to the ocean. And so um, while we do get these heat spells, I, you know, and the harvest dates have changed for sure. We're picking earlier. Um, I think the biggest impact in Napa has been water availability. And of course um, the fires that have, have been recurrent um, in the last couple of years. So every, you know, every area is a little different. You know, Burgundy is semi-continental. So we don't have the same temperature buffers. We don't cool off at night. It stays really warm at night. Um, and mm-hmm. so right now, as we speak today, there's a heat wave going through Burgundy and um, where, it's, it, it, where the temperatures are breaking 100 Fahrenheit um, in the 40s in Celsius. And that's unheard of <laughs> and the nighttime t- temperatures stay really warm also so it's it's wow. uh, it's hard it's not linear um in terms of temperature increases and and i think you know there's both the warming and as everyone talks about also the extreme weather events and one of the big big issues in burgundy is frost because um while harvest has moved back by they're saying an average of 15 days because we did have that sugar buffer, that shaptalization buffer that we've burned through. Um, bud break has moved back by 30 days. So we're now getting green growth much, much earlier. And then we get a normal cold wave come through and just freeze those tiny little tender um, shoots that start growing. And, and that is devastating. Well, yeah. The Porto Protocol. Um, was something you brought up earlier. I, you know, because of you looked into it, it's an amazing, amazing resource. Can you talk a little bit about what it is and why it exists? Yeah, no, the Porto Protocol is a group of um, people in the wine industry. Uh, it, was, it was, the Porto Protocol was started by uh, Taylors and it is uh, funded by Taylors. And essentially the idea is to share um, resources in terms of best practices and information about all things sustainable. So not just climate change, all, you know, water reduction, any, the cost of admission is sharing a study. Um, so I talked about carbon dioxide capture from tanks, but you'll see everything from living roofs to, um, to be, uh, starting bees in the vineyards to yeah, increasing biodiversity to, you know, so everybody contributes whatever they have decided to work on first. 
And the idea is to, um, is to share the low hanging fruit. So really um, share ideas that anyone can implement from all over the world. So you head to the website and you have all of these, all of these case studies that are available for you to read through for free. And then we also have different discussions on different subjects uh, called the climate talks. And, um, and those are loaded with informations information from experts in different fields um, that are also available. So yeah, that, that is an, a great resource and it has absolutely been, you know, part of the things that give me courage to fight is finding other people who have the courage to fight and being able to commiserate with them about how hard it is and how, how scary it is. And just having, having that network, I really think that, you know, that one of the big changes, the fundamental changes that is going to turn this, this ship around is working together. Carbon dioxide capture doesn't, it, it will work when we're all doing it. And we're all, my, my, I imagine in viticulture areas, having underground plumbing of compressed CO2 going to one central location where it's turned into biofuel. And that that's where we should go. How long it'll take us to go there, I don't know. But um, <laughs> many, many things that are ecological are very difficult to do on a mom and pop scale. And um, yeah. And they will really work when we when we work together. Speaking of mom and pop scale, I'm just going to shift gears a little bit. I, I've heard you talk a lot about how, on a, you know, I guess a mom and pop scale or or just a a non industrial scale, how to like how you don't have the same concerns and you shouldn't be having the same concerns as an industrial wine, for example. Like if you're a winery and you're you're a craft winery versus in a, you know, a large industrial winery, um, that the financial realities are just different. And, you know, I've heard you talk a little bit about excellence versus uniqueness mm. and how that plays into that. Um, how, you know, aiming for excellence is really the absolute, the absolute for that, like the necessity for being in that space of, of being a craft producer. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. That sure. And I wouldn't, you know, I don't want to at all sound judgmental. I mean, I really think that the joy in wine is diversity. And there is a place, of course, there's a place for industrial scale wine. But that's not what I've done with my life. And that's not, you know, that's just not where I am. I am in what I've called fine wine, but you know, I'm in a niche, which is really artisanal wine, you know, made by hand, where you take risks. You know, I, I think that the most exciting wines have thriving ecosystems in the soil and um and in the vineyard and in the cellar and so um and so i try to be very light-handed in terms of winemaking i try to leave room for nature which means you're you're opening the door to everything including potentially flaws but if i think if you want to make something that that really opens that door to transcendence where you can feel that vibration of life, then you have to take risks and it's difficult. You can only do that when you are every day tasting your tank and, and right next to it. And you can only do, you can only do that on a certain scale. So yeah, for me, there is a point where, um, where the, the power of that, you know, of that life force uh, gets diminished if you start making too much wine. You have too many tanks to look over, too many vineyards to look over. Um, so, so that that's you know that's a life choice. That's what I find most exciting. That's what, as I said, gives me gives me uh, 
uh, it's my lifeline and I wouldn't, you know, that's what I'm fighting for. Um, but there's, again, there's no judgment. It's all, it's all good. It's all, it all has its place. Uh, that's just what I've chosen to do with, with my short time on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> no, I totally get that. I appreciate that perspective. You, you seem really good at allowing for the, the varieties of things, you know, I, I mean, it's very, it's a, a great quality that you are, that you showcase that I try to yeah, learn. Yeah. I will try to learn from you. No, well, I, um, there are some things I'm very judgmental about. Like there's no room for glyphosate. I mean, here we are on the organic podcast. I'm sure everybody agrees, but I have zero patience for glyphosate. There's no reason it's in our vineyards and any, you know, I, 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 I <laughs> I'm not okay with any, any producer that, that is, um, that is using glyphosate. There's no reason. Um, and so that for me, is is a hard note. Would you say herbicides in general? Yeah, I mean organic herbicides are certainly an annoying um oxymoron. And <laughs> yeah, herbicides yeah. in general. And and you know, uh, regenerative agriculture is so exciting because it's just, you know, there's there's this fraction of you know, of um people who are keeping an eye on climate change and people who have been really innovators in the wine industry in terms of, of uh, slowing emissions and getting to zero emissions. And they would make the argument that it's better to farm conventionally, quote unquote, which means using herbicides, um, than, than to be organic because of all the tractor passes. And of course, you know, tractors are diesel run by and large. Now we're talking, there are electric tractors. So some people can have their cake and eat too at the stage. But I mean, the regenerative conversation has just blown the lid off of that whole debate because, you know, why not just leave, leave the crop, the undergrowth and, um, and you're making zero yeah. tractor passes and you can have it all. So that's, that's yeah. exciting. How, how does that play out in, burgundy because i know that there's such a tradition of of plowing there yeah in okay the so, vineyards, you know? yeah i mean what's fun in Bur ah, what's fun in burgundy <laughs> what's fun in burgundy right. is um that you because of the napoleonic code uh you have the splintering of the landscape and so you'll have five rows here which belong to you and then three rows which belong to someone else and 10 rows that belong to yet another person and you can go on your dog walk and and watch what other people are doing and, uh, and, and see. And so we have, you know, we have some people in Burgundy who a couple years ago have decided to completely embrace, um, embrace regenerative farming and not eliminate any of the undergrowth, bless them. But we've also had problems with drought in, in Burgundy and uh, 2020 in particular. And that was the first time I've ever seen vines die of thirst and the vineyards that had growth underneath them were hammered especially hard. And so, you know, it took, we, we have now understand absolutely that when you plow, you release carbon dioxide up into the atmosphere and, um, at Domaine Dujac, we've decided to go for a compromise, which is to say we are leaving all of the growth in the row and just uh, cutting underneath the vine, uh, taking making a cut underneath the vine to reduce the competition of that growth and the plant. So we're doing a compromise, but it's a huge, um, a huge reduction in terms of plowing. But certainly, you know, just three years ago, we plowed regularly and we would, you know, we would leave the, the growth under the vine during the winter. And then we would plow anytime it got too high uh, throughout the growing season, which is quite a lot. And so we that was a major, major change that started really just last year. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, have you noticed, uh, you know, difficulty or, uh, I mean, 
I know there's always an adjustment period, so maybe you're still yeah, waiting to see. Yeah, too early to draw conclusions, but we're really pretty happy with it. I mean, once you once you look at you know the the you talk to again to the specialist, the soil science specialist, and you realize that soil is just like a thumbnail of living of a living uh, carbon sequestering growth above a largely inorganic inorganic rock, and every time you go through and plow, I mean, you're just sending tons of CO two up into the air and. And, um, and so we saw the data and it was just absolutely head spinning and we, you know, quickly just changed, changed directions and, um, and decided to, uh, plow only under the vine. And that's, yeah, only this year have we, have we started. So we're not even through the growing season, but, um, but, but we got so much rain this year. It's hard to say, you know, when you do things like this, you need 10 years to really draw conclusions. And then the plant adjusts also, you know, it takes, it takes a while when, when you convert, uh, to organics, it takes a while for the vine to adjust and to, and to strengthen. Right. Till you, till you build back the soil yeah. health and everything that right. the, the whole ecosystem health basically. Right. Right. Now, are, so you are involved in several, two main fronts in terms of ways to reduce carbon in the wine industry. And one is the carbon capture and reuse like in the winery and the other are reusable bottles and, and how, well, just bottles in general, how that can be mitigated because it's our biggest footprint yeah. in the carbon yeah. world. Can you talk, do you want to talk about yeah. what, what you're currently working on with those? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So carbon capture, I, I really got as far as I could because we're now, we just need to wait for technology to catch up, which, so uh, essentially we have plumbed Domaine Dujac so that we can evacuate the carbon dioxide uh, to a central location. And we're waiting for for the for the technology to give us a sustainable way of collecting that CO two, so I, I've taken that as far as I can, and um, and and certainly I hope to do carbon capture in California as well. But I have a custom crush facility, so I have much less control. But I'm I'm I've got you know. I've got long-term plans and long-term things. My, uh, my imagination is working on, but I'm not, I'm not <laughs> capturing carbon dioxide. I'm not set up in California to do that yet. But, um, with Porta protocol, I'd, I had gotten a little impatient with the low hanging fruit. Low hanging fruit is all very nice, but, um, I wanted to go after, I wanted to shoot for the stars, shall we say. And anytime you go onto these, um, onto these panels to talk about, uh, the industry and our emissions, the conversation will inevitably come back to bottles because, you know, there are a bunch of ways to to measure your imprint on the world. One is through um, a carbon audit. Another is a life cycle analysis. No matter how you, you, you approach it, bottles represent 50 to 75% of a winery's impact on, on the planet. And, right. and the issue is, you know, in order to create your bottle, heating up, um, heating up glass to mold it into a specific bottle just takes a tremendous amount of energy. Mm. And, and so, and then compounded on that is, is recycling. And, um, you know, people will say, well, but glass can be infinitely recycled. That's true. However, it's not happening in the U.S. Only one out of three uh, wine bottles is recycled and the other two end up in landfill. On top of that, um, you know, putting emissions aside, 
the world is running out of glass and, um, and essentially the sand necessary to make glass. I mean, you'd think, oh, but there's, what about the deserts? Surely we can make glass forever. Unfortunately, desert sand <laughs> doesn't, it doesn't, you can't, it doesn't have enough silica and you can't use it to make glass. You have to use riverbed sand. And so that's, you know, when you realize in order to make glass and it's not being reused, it's most of it in the, if you were talking to the, about the United States, most of it is actually ending up in landfill. And we're just, you know, taking this non-renewable uh, source of riverbed sand and, and exploiting it. It's, it's, you know, it's a really upsetting idea. And so, I mean, if we want to be truly sustainable, which is to say, the way we are living today allows for humans to carry on for the 80,000 years we should have enjoyed in relatively um, calm temperatures and, and weather patterns on this planet. Well, the wine industry should, should embrace uh, zero waste and start reusing bottles. And that's something that used to be done in Europe and still is done in Europe. We still have that infrastructure. And certainly, you know, when, when uh, Jacques started in, in the late 60s, uh, he washed all of his bottles and reused them and everyone did. And, um, and there's less and less of that today, but it still exists in, in Europe. And um, so I decided that it was time to make that my cause. And I started that this year. And so, as I mentioned before, I, I, I had gotten in, in contact through Porter Protocol with um, a company called Good Goods, which has, you know, it's a startup. All of these things are startups and they're all kind of teetering on the edge of vanishing at any moment or getting grants. Um, um, so Good Goods is right now kind of still uh, gathering its momentum. But through Good Goods, I have met a, a woman named uh, Melissa Saunders, who has a distribution company in, in um, Manhattan. And she and I are working together on, on this reuse plan. So the, the Santa Cruz Mountains Merlot, which uh, was bottled this April, is, so one of the things about bottle reuse, the problem is the label. Um, our, our, the labels that you and I remember <laughs> that, that were the glue labels, those were great because they came off easily and then you could reuse the bottle. But the problem was you put them in an ice bucket and they would come off or you put them in your right. color and they would take <laughs> off. And so the world in the 90s moved to autoadhesive labels which uh, are essentially stickers and those are impossible to get off. And so um, essentially you are taking something that can be reused and making it un unreusable. So uh, in order to get this project off the ground, I had to bring labels, you know, quote unquote, washable labels that are autoadhesive from Europe in my suitcase over here for bottling. And I am starting this tiny pilot in Napa on my own, on my own small brand to see how it goes, see how this label goes. And then um, if that if, you know, based on my experiences there, I have a list of other producers who would like to try a pilot of bottle reuse in Napa. And, and I've been talking with Viralia, who's very interested in that as well. So I'm trying to build this, you know, um, local grassroots bottle reuse um, on a small scale, just to prove the point and, and try to move, move the industry forward. Yeah. What does that involve? much more local consumption so that you can have that exchange happen locally or how does it work if you're you know so distributed yeah and things like that okay so if we're talking like long-term success of bottle reuse ideally where we would land is we only have one bottle shape what's you know the challenges mm -hmm. are 
as I first mentioned, as I just mentioned, the label. We all have to move to a label that can actually come off. And if we really wanted to get the industry to zero emissions, we wouldn't have all of these different bottle sizes and shapes. Um, because, you know, with reuse, if you are accumulating bottles, they're all different shapes, then you have to go through this horrible sorting situation and have really the same height in order to rebottle with it. So, mm. you know, if we're going to really make it work, that's the long-term goal. And for these scale, these small pilots, um, yes, I think probably the best uh, solution is to keep it close to home. But I do think that if, you know, so the, the pilot I'm working on is going to Manhattan and, and I'm in California. So the wine is going to be shipped to Manhattan. It's going to go to accounts that are committed to keeping the dirty bottle, putting them back in the box. And then, um, and then this distributor is going to recollect those, those cases. And when they're all sold through, ship them back to California where Conscious Containers, another startup, just got its funding, just bought its fancy uh, wine bottle rewashing machinery. And, um, and then we'll ship it back to my winery and we'll use them again. So this is, you know, we're going to, we're going to try it. We're going to prove the point and, and I'll, we'll see how it goes, but we are going to do it uh, across the whole United States. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, do you want to talk about any ways that people can try the, the wines or the, <laughs> you're involved in so many uh, projects around the globe. Yeah. Um, well, Tran is really accessible that you can find almost everywhere. I mean, uh, could you spell that for everyone? T R I E N N E S. And, um, it's, we mainly make rosé, you know, Domaine Dujac is, you know, the shining light and example for all of the things that all of the different projects I work on. And, um, and so Trian wines were you know, making nearly a million bottles and, um, they retail for under $20 in the U S and they're organic. And so we're pretty proud of that. It's, you know, it's, we're working on yeah, a high cool. margin to, yeah, to make wine that's organic. The rosé, um, is most of what we make and it's, not certified organic and it's not because not a hundred percent of the fruit is organically grown we're trying to get there but we buy fruit and i would say 70 percent of the fruit is organically farmed and the other 30 percent isn't but um it's it's pretty good all of the estate fruit is organic so we also make a red and a white and those are organically grown and under under twenty dollars, so we feel, you know, that's it's 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 tiny margins to um, to yeah. make wine without any chemicals, and so that that's easy. Trend is pretty easy to find. Snowden okay. is also, I mean, you can come to our website and I'm sure we have some wine that's available and uh, <laughs> that would be delightful. Uh, the, the Cousins, yeah, Cousins is not yet released. We're working on a release for this fall and we're trying to figure out how we can manage reverse logistics for that, that, that Merlot I was talking about. Um, yeah. We direct sell directly. How can we can get the consumer to ship us back the empty bottle? We're working on that. Um, and, and certainly that's where I'd like to go long-term for all of our wines. Um, but they're all now we're certifying organics at Snowden and, um, and we're the main thing we're doing in terms of sustainability on my family property is uh, working on maintaining the forest. We have 170 acres, only 23 are under vine. And I'm certain that any other owner would have uh, pulled out forest and put in more vineyards. But my family has, uh, they, I think they removed a tree one time and my father and uncle said never again. And so we, our biggest, our biggest service is the carbon sink of the, of the acres of, of raw forest. 
Yeah. And then Domaine Dujac, my goodness, that is hard to get your hands on. I do apologize, but that's where the wine world is these days. And uh, yeah. I recommend going to your local bottle bo- bottle shop and seeing and seeing if it's <laughs> see if you can get on yeah. like a pre-release <laughs> allocation list. Yeah. Um, so Trian also has some big names behind it. In addition to yourself, right? There's uh, quite a, a Burgundian um, who's who of of people involved, right? Well, yeah. My father-in-law um, started it with Aubert de Villain, who yeah, who runs the Domaine de la Romney Conti, but they're also very good friends. And um, and then there was a third partner, but he's not he, he's no longer with us, and he was never in the wine industry. But that was it. It was just uh, Jacques and Aubert and a third okay. partner. Yeah, and um, and and Aubert comes from time to time, but really, it's it's the Sass family that um, that manages the domaine with a a full team, um, very talented on site who mainly who mainly run the domaine. We come in and you know once a month or so. Yeah. Um... Well, thank you so much, Diana. Yeah. I really appreciate this. I mean, are there any closing resources you want to turn people to? I mean, I know we mentioned the Porto Protocol, which I, I think is fantastic. Is there anything else or any closing Well, words? I mean, I think that it's uplifting. You know, and we've, we've talked about the darkness, but I think that starting to do something helps me at least uh, live with the situation. And so I think, you know, Porto Protocol is all about low hanging fruit for, for uh, our businesses. But I think identifying that low hanging fruit as individuals, it makes us, you know, gives us a bit of power and control. And so I would name some of those in closing, you know, um, I have embraced a zero waste lifestyle to the, to the extent I can. So I, you know, I'm looking right now at my water bottle, which uh, is an is a nine month old uh, apple juice <laughs> glass bottle with the label still stuck on because it's one of those really sticky auto adhesive labels, even though I've watched them many, many, many times at this point. Um, so yeah, looking into what it means to uh, live with zero waste, probably the number one thing is devote. <laughs> you know, I think we can never say that too much. You know, it's 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 power. We have to vote. We have to make sure the people we put in office um, execute what we like, because as you said, it's, it's about policies and uh, you know, we can do all, all the changes in the world, capture all of the CO2 off the, off the tanks uh, that the wine industry produces. But until there's a carbon tax and until we stop fossil fuel subsidies, we're not going to get anywhere. So vote. <laughs> yeah. um, also, I think, you know, I think it's time to, for the wine industry to start talking about plant-based food pairings, you know, it's you know, our my wine is delicious with kale salad, or I don't know what, but we need to stop talking <laughs> about pairing things with beef and pairing things with with animals, you know, uh, animal-based foods, and and start leading the way in terms of um, living a, a a wine with wine on the t- a life with wine on the table and with plant-based dishes. So those are a few things that I think uh, oh, I love that. you can pick yeah. and choose from. Just start with one that feels doable. You know, maybe it's maybe it's just a cloth bag in your purse and refusing plastic bags when you go shopping. But just start with one thing and then add another, and you start to feel good. You know, with my kids this year, we did a zero waste Christmas card, and um, they took their homework and they shredded it, which was extremely cathartic, into tiny little uh, confetti bits. <laughs> <laughs> and they tossed it into uh, a bowl of water and we let it soak overnight. And then we took a hand blender and completely blended it into pulp. 
And then we made paper out of it. So we, um, we dried it on this little frame that we had made out of a circular frame that we had used from a darning kit or something. And so these little paper tortilla thingies, Frisbees, dried it out. And then we glued, we, you know, painted Merry Christmas on it. And then we glued nasturtium seeds onto it and said, you know, please plant me in, in, in March. And it was, you know, so much fun. And, and it was a compostable uh, Christmas card and we were terribly pleased. And, um, you know, that kind of thing is you can really get creative and, and find joy. <laughs> and That's so, great. Yeah. Some of these uh, <laughs> granola <laughs> exercises. <laughs> no, it's great. I mean, I and I've seen those catch on. I mean, I, I saw some Japanese paper that actually you can just throw the paper in your garden and it grows into wildflowers. Yeah, basically. like it, yeah. the newspaper is actually embedded, you know, wildflower seeds mm-hmm. and things like that. That's that, yeah, exactly that. it. But yeah, there's nothing quite like taking, you know, your French dictée. The dictée is like this horrible exercise where the teacher will read a story and you have to. Write, dictate it, and write down, and not have any uh, any mistakes. And um, and then she'll come in with her vicious red pen and circle all the mistakes you've made. And anyway, I had them grab their dictate and shred it. And they, there was an especial glee in their eyes with that, that part of the process. <laughs> That's so great. Yeah. Uh, well, Diana, thank you so much. And uh, you know, really, any support that we can bring for your what you're doing hope to do and and i just want to say thanks for this conversation no, and talking about it all no, I mean, about this podcast is already supporting it and listening and listening in and spending the hour with us is 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 a gift and so thank you thank you for being on this ride Thanks so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. And if you did, please do leave a review for the Organic Wine Podcast. It helps a lot and we want to get the word out to as many people as we can, which your review will help do. Thanks so much.